Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 2023. This is the first on the tape podcast of 2023, Dan Nathan. And what better guest to start the year off than the great Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. I am excited. Of course, Danny Moses is along with us. The very pedestrian Danny Moses. Final week of the NFL, Danny, as you know. But Mike, before we get started, this past weekend was some of the best college football that I've ever watched in my life. And I will tell you that University of Michigan Texas Christian Horn Frog game will go up as one of the top five games I've ever watched. I am certain you love the outcome of that game. Am I wrong? I like the second game better. Uh, no doubt. <laughs> By the way, Georgia. I mean, Ohio State came out of nowhere. The Big Ten acquitted itself rather well, getting two teams in the top four, yet both teams lost. Michigan starting the day off with a bit of a roll. The biggest surprise for me was how many points were scored in both games. It was insane. There was no defense being played. And that was remarkable to me. So, yeah, the two great college football games, Michigan took the uh, short end of the first game. But you got to give it to TCU. Okay, okay. so I'm leading you down the primrose path that yeah. you clearly don't want to go down. You are a 1989 graduate of the great school, the University of Michigan Wolverines, the maze and blue. I think that's what they call it. Is that correct? Proud to be a Michigan Wolverine. There we go. Hold on a second, guy. That was mealtime 89. That was a college basketball national championship. Am I correct. correct, Mike? That is correct. National basketball championships in 89. We went to the Rose Bowl, though, as well in football. It was a good, it was a good year to go out on. Good year. This January, we have a Friday the 13th. That's coming up to a theater near you. Stand by for that. But in October, we had an October the 14th, which was a Friday. And on that day, Mike Wilson, you who have been correct all through the year, turned tactically bullish, said the market could rally about 18%. Lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. You caught Danny Moses a bit off guard because he didn't know what to do that following Monday. But speak to us about not only that call, but how difficult it is to make a call like that in the seat that you sit in. Well, first of all, it's a lot easier to go tactically bullish than tactically bearish in, in my seat. So that's number one. Number two, it was a dangerous call because we definitely thought it was a bear market rally. And like, why mess around with that? Even my own team cut them off guard a little bit. They said, why are we doing this? And look, an 18% rally, which I thought was coming, if you can catch that, you got to catch it. That's right. In the fourth quarter. So what prescripted that call was two things. Number one, 
our call was becoming very, very consensus at that point. The buy side clients were becoming actually more bearish than me, saying we're definitely going to go to 3200. It's over, and it just became too consensus. That's number one. Number two, we had that CPI report, which was actually horrible. And the market opened gap down in that morning on, I think it was a Thursday morning. Mm-hmm. And then we made a 6% intraday rally, and that was beautiful price action right at the level we were looking for, the 200-week moving average. So it was like a technical strategist fantasy. It was like a perfect setup. So I said, if it's ever going to be one, this is it. We took a shot at it and it worked, got going, got some momentum. We even put the price target out of 4,000, 4,150. And that's exactly where we traded, kind of 4,150 on the upside. And the reversal though, call, that was harder to make because you were going into year end, looked like we had some momentum. And I, I think I was on your show the night before mm-hmm. even talking about how I thought we could rally into year end, but then we got that crazy price action the other way off of a CPI that was better than expected. And I said, I got to go the other way now. So Mike, you've been looking at markets since the early 90s, and it only seemed like bottom left, upper right for a large part of the 90s. But we remember, especially the back half, it wasn't like that. We had some tremendous years of returns in the S&P 500, but there were some huge peak to trough drawdowns. And so if you were long short, it provided a tremendous amount of opportunity. So my question to you here is like the S&P in 2022, it was about as difficult as an environment. If you think about it from a rate standpoint, you think about the volatility in commodities and FX and almost every other major risk asset, the S&P only closed down 20% on the year. And we just talked about a tactical trading rally that you called that was 18%. We had one earlier in the year from the mid-June lows to the August highs in the middle of that month, about the same. So talk to me a little bit about where you think the S&P is right now. Like, like give, it a, give it a scorecard for 2022. And again, I think you're calling for much lower lows. When you were on Fast Money a couple of weeks ago, you had a base case scenario where you get back maybe to 3,200 or something in the S&P 500. But again, the whole crux of this question is not in a straight line here, right? And so how do we do it? Yeah. I mean, look, the bear market's not over because we haven't really priced the earnings degradation that we foresee or the risk of an economic recession, which is increasing seemingly every day. The other variable I want to throw into the cauldron now, which is a change for me, six weeks ago, I would have thought the Fed was probably going to pause at the end of this next rate hike and then probably cut as soon as we saw the eyes of the recession, if we get one, like a labor cycle. Now I'm starting to question that, meaning I don't think the Fed is going to come to the rescue right away, even if we get an employment cycle. Let's say unemployment's up 100 basis points, 150 basis points, which is kind of game over at that point. So that's above 5%. Correct. But at that point, normally I would say the Fed's definitely cutting. I'm not sure they're going to jump right into that pool this time. And if that happens, that's how you get to sort of 3,000. I think it's 3,000 more than 3,200 now. So I think the market has done a really good job, very efficiently, of pricing in the Fed. The Fed pivoted quickly in January of last year with the minutes and then got pretty hawkish pretty quick and have surprised everybody, including myself, in terms of how hawkish they've been. So I think the market's done a really efficient job of pricing in the higher cost of capital. But it, it still is being a bit complacent around what's the impact of that on growth. And oh, by the way, what's the impact of the pandemic on growth, meaning payback and demand, all the things that you know, the Microsoft CEO was talking about this week, as well as the effects of the Fed hikes themselves. What's that going to do to growth? next year on margins and profitability. Before Danny gets in here, I will mention that you are the first guest of the On The Tape podcast to use the word cauldron correctly. Of course, speaking from Macbeth, the very Shakespearean Macbeth, fire, fire, toil and trouble, or double, double, toil and trouble. Danny Moses, please. Mike, you were on our podcast on October 6th. I remember sitting across from you and saying, 
you know what, Mike? I agree with you on everything. And when you go bullish, I'm going to go bullish. And so we leave there. The thing comes out October 7th. And then someone hits me on October 14th. Hey, did you hear Mike Wilson went went bullish? I go, no, not that Mike Wilson. It's not possible. <laughs> I swear. I, I said I would go with you. And I, I looked at it. I read your note. I'm like, God damn it. I'm like, it's too cutesy for me. I'm not going to do it. And so the S&P, I think, was like 3650 when you were in our studio. And then I think it dropped to like 3,600, but you obviously sensed something that it was a bit oversold to your point. So I didn't follow you into the fire there. I should have. I stayed the course. And now as we sit here, and I think you and I are in total agreement, I think Dan and Guy as well with you, is that earnings are what's going to matter. So my question to you is that this handoff, it feels like the last selling opportunity will be a rally when the Fed finally does officially send the signal that they're going to pivot. Because to me, then it's like, okay, the Fed's a sideshow for me at this point. Earnings are what's going to drive it. I know you just alluded to it, but can you just talk about that little time period? How are we going to trade that kind of handoff? Yeah, I mean, this has been something that we haven't traded particularly well, quite frankly. We talked about back in September, we called it Fire and Ice Part 2, which is that this, the market's now going to transition away from inflation and the fire and the concerns there in the Fed and to this idea that growth is going to disappoint. And quite frankly, that hasn't really happened, Danny. I mean, yesterday, day when rates are up, the market's down. That's not the market worrying about growth. That's the market still worrying about growth is too hot and the Fed's going to kill us. So I think we're not quite into that transition yet. I think you're dead right that if the Fed raises rates on February 1st by 25, maybe they do 50, one last hard kick, and then they indicate they're going to pause, we can get a little bit of a rally. But then the stage is set for everything that we think is going to happen, which is that earnings are going to disappoint wildly this year. And the market's going to trade bad news as bad news. No longer bad news is good news because the Fed is done. This cycle is very unique in one regard. Everything's happened extremely fast. And as a result of that, there is no window of opportunity for the Fed to kick save the cycle. They're driving us right into the end of the cycle by design because they had to because they were late to start their process. There's no window. That window is going to be days or weeks at best. So, Mike, one of the things you talked about, too, which I just don't think there's enough investors that have traded long enough to realize not just cost of capital, but kind of the wind that's going to be blowing in their face with quantitative tightening, which I believe will end at some point in 2023 when it becomes evident, just the pressure that it's putting on credit spreads, et cetera. What are your thoughts on QT's impact? Have you been able to quantify it? How do you kind of trade that as well? Yeah, that was another reason we got a little bit more constructive in October because we had noticed that the TGA, which is the Treasury's general account, which we talked about on the show last time, has been drawn down significantly by three or four or $500 billion this year. I don't know if they were doing it deliberately, you know, as a way to kind of ease the stress into year end, election, whatever, but that's an offset, quite frankly, to QT. The other offset has been the repo operations, and that has been extremely active. So those two, you got to combine all three. When you look at all three, it was pretty amazing. The rate of change, and when you add all those three up, was actually quite positive from October, basically October 13th, through early December. And then the year end ended poorly because those three combined turned into a net drag again. And I think that's going to continue. Our math suggests that TGA can't be drawn down any further. The reverse repo now is going the other way. And that's a draw on capital. And the Fed is going to remain doing QT of some form. So the liquidity picture is going to deteriorate into the spring. And then eventually, I agree with you, they'll stop because they have to. 
So back in October, mid-October, again, the S&P was 36.50. You made that tactical bullish call, and you got a lot of pushback, you said. So you got a lot of pushback from your clients who were really happy for you to be articulating a bearish view all year long. You probably got a lot of them involved or got, got them to take some money off the table, let's say, earlier in the year. But they pushed back really hard. We go to 4,000. Here we are. We're just above 3,800 here. So where are those clients now? We're talking about big money clients. We're talking about mutual funds. We're talking about pension funds. Yeah, so that's the other thing that changed in December, too, is that the pervasive bearishness that we felt in October, by the time we got to December, the majority of clients now were saying we're not going to make new lows. And they were talking about a year-end rally and trying to play it. So the positioning changed. Now, it didn't change dramatically to the way that they weren't nearly as long as they were earlier in the year, but they had definitely either been forced to take out the shorts or been forced to take on more beta risk. And they were definitely in the mindset that 3600 was good enough. Here's where I get the most concerned now is that our call, for better or worse, is consensus, right? It's that we're going to have a tough first half and then a better second half. However, when you actually talk to people, buy side and sell side people, when you get into the weeds on that, they're not that bearish. They're not really saying it's that painful. What they're saying is we're going to go back and test the lows of 3,600, and then we're going to rally back to 4,000 or 4,200 or whatever their number is for year end. And so people are more interested in buying that retest than they are worried about protecting or making money on a real move to something like 3,000. I would say the number of people who think we're going to trade at 3,000 is a very small minority, less than 10% of people I talk to. Okay, maybe you guys are in that camp, but it's that's not consensus. So I think the trick here is understanding that the first half downside is going to be way worse than what people are anticipating. So there's going to be very little appetite to want to buy that. Uh, hopefully, that's my hope, because then you can actually make some real money there. Other than your intelligence, the thing that sticks out to me is your humility. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I want a straight answer with this one. So we went from Shakespeare to Marv Albert. We're going to go back to Shakespeare, but I'm going to give you now Henry IV. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And right now, Mike, you're wearing the crown out there in terms of the calls that you've made over the last couple of years. And I know that you know that intuitively. I also know that you realize the next call you make is going to be under the frickin' microscope and scrutinized to no end. So as you think about that, I know it's not going to change your work, but do you feel that type of pressure going into it? Well, that's why I'm retiring today. Stop it! <laughs> Making news right here. No, I mean, look, it's nice of you to say that. but No, it's, it's, no, no, no. Yeah. It's not nice of me to say that. Yeah. It happens to be true. It's, it's true to a degree. I appreciate that. And look, we wear that sort of responsibility, I would call it, as opposed to a crown, because not only are we so trying to service you know institutional investors, professional investors, but we're servicing a lot of individual investors who really do need our help trying to navigate what is a very challenging environment. So one thing I do pride myself on, some people might not agree with the humility part, particularly my wife, but uh, as far as the honesty, I will tell you how I feel. I'm never going to sugarcoat it. I'm never going to try and position a call so that maybe I can come out looking good in either outcome. And what I would say is that it won't change that. It won't change my process in terms of trying to deliver the honest truth of what our work is saying. It doesn't mean it's going to be right, but we're, we're not going to pull punches on that. Hey, Mike, one thing you just mentioned, when you fight the tide, when everybody's one way, you kind of want to go the other. What's interesting to me is the majority of strategists and people out there say, yep, we're going to have a recession. Yet, I don't think they realize what that really means. They say it. I go, yeah, we're going to, we're going to have some type of recession. How do you translate a recession kind of to the stock market when it may occur? Because it's always backwards looking. How do you kind of jive that? Well, look, Danny, I mean, you said it perfectly. That was kind of what I was trying to say earlier. But you don't say things like that flippantly when you're managing risk. You don't just say, 
hey, we're going to have a recession. And But that is exactly what I hear out there. It's like people, oh, this is the most predicted recession ever, so it must be priced. Let me be clear about this, okay? When recessions hit, bad stuff happens, like weird stuff happens. And Danny, you know this better than anybody. Balance sheet stuff happens that you don't predict, right? That price goes to a place you never would expect. And that's why I feel like the downside is pretty easy, 3000 because 3000 is not even really a severe price level. It's basically 16, 15 times $200, which is, I think, a very doable number this year on earnings. And you're at 180 I'm at 180 potentially. That's our bear case. Okay. But we're we're at 195 base? base. But like, okay, six, 15, 16 times, that's not even cheap Yeah, uh, in a rate in a rate environment at 375, 380. So we're big fans of David Rosenberg here too. Rosie, we call Rosie, him, right? Rosie, we all call him Rosie. He had in his note this morning a comment that I think is really interesting. I'd love to get all of your take on it. But first, Mike Wilson, the equity market bulls yearning for the lows to happen in the stock market in the context of a recessionary bear phase need bond yields to come down first. Thoughts on that? I, I thought that was kind of really interesting. Yeah. And I think that's where my view has changed the most in the last six weeks or so is that I thought we would get more rate relief already and we're not getting it. And that's the part of the story where I think the bond market may have a right, where they're saying, hey, don't sugarcoat what the Fed is going to do here. Like, this is existential for them. So they're going to make sure they put out the fire, and they may stay at 4.5%, longer once they get there than people appreciate. And that means you're not going to get relief at the back end, as David was suggesting. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And you know, one of the things that I thought, and I back into this a little bit differently, but I thought if we were to see the market sell off that obviously, Mike, you think is happening, I know Dan, Danny and myself believe as well, you'll see a flight to quality in the form of the bond market, which should send yields lower. So I think a sell off in the stock market, Dan, makes yields go lower, not yields going lower, making the stock. Now, man, that might be somewhat nuanced, but that's how I think we get there. Yeah. So the way I look at it is this, we're starting to see in various sectors, the cream of the crop rise to the top as far as equities go, right? You're seeing the Bed Bath Beyonds go by the wayside. The game stops. All the meme stocks are just falling. People are going to gravitate there to quality. And there's a reason for that, obviously. The yield curve is telling us that we're going into recession. And to the point that Guy just made, and Mike, you kind of alluded to, and I agree with Rosie on this aspect, is that the 10-year yields, I think, will continue to go down over time as people realize as long as the two-year stays up. And the inversion is basically telling us that. So, is the 60-40 have any chance of working? Or maybe the 40 has a chance of working this year if you're out on the long end? Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know you have to advise people on that. Yeah, I mean, that's been our call for this year is that basically bonds are back, particularly as you go into the worst part of the slowdown next year. So I don't anticipate rates going to 5%, right? So like either way, it's a good carry trade, whether you want to play that at the short end or the long end and take more duration risk, and you can make that decision for yourself. But we think a barbell makes sense, having some duration risk for recession, because there should be some rally at the back end, ultimately, if a recession arrives. Urian Timmer came on on the tape. One of the things that he said that I never really thought all that much about, and I'm sure it's true, he said, seldom if ever has the multiple troughed when earnings troughed. Now, I only mention that because David Tepper was on the network a couple of weeks ago, echoing a lot of the things that we've talked about, but basically stating what he was about to say at some point, which wound up being the case. And he said that in, I think, post-financial crisis, we actually saw the multiple for the S&P trade down to somewhere between 11 and 12. So your answer before about 3,000 not even being all that dramatic, 
there's facts behind that that support that exactly right. People don't realize that the multiple can go significantly lower than we are now. So the way we get to the 3,000 target is not 15 times 200, because as you rightly point out, you never make the low in earnings trough. You make the low with a lower mult with a trough multiple on your way to the trough in earnings. So we've been using the math of 13 times 200. We talked about this last time. 13 times 200 out, 220 which is 40% of the way from the peak to the trough. And we think that should arrive sometime in the spring. And I don't know what the moment of truth will be when you get to the 13 times, but it'll be some event that basically creates a little mini panic. Obviously, the last three or four recessions are pretty obvious. It was COVID, it was Lehman, then it was 9-11. Okay, this time around, it may be, and I've been thinking a lot about this, it may be that the Fed doesn't come to the rescue and the equity market has the quick heart attack. I almost had a heart attack yesterday listening to you on Bloomberg. You had some commentary about the tech sector. And again, for some of our listeners, Mike and I have known each other for 25 years. He was a, what do you call it, spry um, back in the late Spry is a good word. I don't know how to spell it. He was a tech sector specialist. So he was a guy who literally probably knew more on Morgan Stanley's entire equity desk than anyone else about tech. He was calling on a lot of fancy hedge funds. And that's how we got to know each other. I was the least of the fancy hedge funds. So I've always listen to your macro commentary and really try to take out some stuff around tech because, again, we had a front row seat for the tech bubble and then the implosion, and you were very helpful back then. But your comments about tech companies being really bad at cost cutting. And I think it was really interesting because that interview came on a day that Michael Burry of the Big Short fame. Mm-hmm. Um, well, do we have someone who's a bit more famous than him? Uh, yeah, we do. His name is Danny Moses. Yeah. And I would suggest that Danny Moses is not only more famous, but more handsome. Yeah, much more. Yeah. But he tweeted yesterday after Salesforce announced, what was it, 10,000 job cuts or something like that? CRM should have been down 25% on those job cuts. Job cuts are not the reason to own that. And it's interesting. So last night, the Wall Street Journal broke that story about Amazon, who had originally agreed to cut maybe 10,000 jobs, and now they're going to do 18,000. But again, this is a company that had hundreds of thousands of employees, so it's really kind of a rounding error. Talk to us a little bit about tech, because this is a week where, and guys said it on this podcast, going back to June when Microsoft pre announced Remember that quarter? They said it was on FX, but really there was some other probably demand issues going on there too. Satya's got some kind of cautionary comments. And then that stock was down 5% yesterday on a downgrade from a brokerage firm. No offense, from a brokerage firm. We're way beyond that sort of stuff. And then it's down today as we're talking nearly another 3%. That's a big move for one of the biggest stocks in the entire stock market. So investors are basically shooting first, asking questions later. They think this is going to get worse before it gets better for mega cap tech. Well, what's crazy is the market was actually up yesterday yeah. and that stock had that move. So mm-hmm. now we're getting into the real action where there's the confessional period is arriving. And this is why we did the tactical call too, because we felt like companies were not going to do that in October because they could just kick the can one more quarter and see what happens. But now you're staring down the barrel of 2023. You have to give some guidance on that. You might as well set the bar low. So this is where you clean house. You start doing that. And and I agree with the comment from Michael Burry. I mean, it's sort of my thought process, too. These are growth companies. Right? You don't want growth companies going into cost-cutting mode unless they're a value stock. And so when it gets cheap enough, then sure, that becomes a good idea, but that's not where we are. Well, let's talk about expectations because, again, our friend John Butters over there at FactSet in his Earnings Insight blog, he's talking about Q4 earnings. Analysts have cut them about 6.5% over the course 
of the quarter, and that's at a far greater percentage than the 5, 10, 20-year averages here. So are we going to run ourselves into a situation that if the stock market continues to go down into Q4 earnings at the end of this month, that maybe the guides aren't as bad, or maybe the companies don't have the same incentives? If Microsoft's trading at a new two-year low, they might be a bit more careful about how aggressive they are to the downside with their guidance. Well, it's not just that, but I mean, like that's the pattern we've seen all year, which is that the market is sold off into the quarter. And then on the earnings, there was a relief rally because every quarter has been cutting numbers into the quarter. This has been the worst of the four, but they've all been bad. So could we get a relief rally and sort of the market broadly into and when earnings start being reported? Yes. But don't forget this idea that this is the quarter where they got to guide 23. Okay. Nobody cares about this quarter or next quarter. They care about the year. And so every quarter for the last three, there hasn't been any revisions to speak of on 2023 numbers. It's incredible, right? I mean, 23 numbers have barely come down, even though they've missed four quarters in a row, because there's been no guidance. So that, that's your risk, I think, that's different this quarter versus the prior two or three. And Mike, just to take it back to tech for a minute, these are, for the most part, growth stocks that are morphing back into value. And that's a painful transition. And that completely coincides with the whole idea of what is a trough multiple on the S&P. What's amazing to me, though, is how people use how much a stock is down from its highs as a reason to buy it versus looking at it on an absolute basis. And these are elephants, and that can be good and bad, meaning if things slow down at Microsoft, and I know they haven't really said that that was a downgrade per se, but they have said things along the way that growth is obviously slowing, but Amazon job cuts, Salesforce job cuts, et cetera. What is the bias, obviously, of the investor, and how do you tell them, forget about where it was. It never should have been. Their money was free then. How do you kind of burn back through the atmosphere on that? Well, I mean, some people have to just learn that the hard way. I mean, I learned it the hard way. I mean, I've been doing this 35 years. I mean, we've all had stories where like, I knew I should have sold it. I knew I should have sold it before you know you're down 80%. You know, it's like, oh, here we go. So yeah, just because the stock's down 50 doesn't mean it can't go down another 50. That's the magic of math. And we're working off a, a period of time. This is how we talk to our clients about it. I mean, not sophisticated clients, but the unsophisticated who own these stocks in size. They've owned them for 20 years and they've made a fortune and they don't want to sell them and pay the tax. And you have to explain to them, look, these cannot be the winners in the next upcycle. That's just not the way it ever works. A, they're too big. B, they had their day in the sun. They've over-earned. The multiple got out of whack. It has nothing to do with the Fed, by the way. That happens in every cycle. In the 70s, it was energy. In the 90s, it was tech in that time. In the 2000s, it was the commodity stuff in the banks. Okay, so now it's tech again. It's gross. So it's, it's just the nature of the cycles and the way they work. The former winners can't be the next winners. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, 
Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Since you mentioned Sun, I'll go back to Shakespeare yet again, Dan Nathan. What light (laughs) through yonder window breaks? It is the East, and Juliet is the Sun, of course, from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. So since you mentioned Sun, what are the bright spots out here? There are some sectors that work in this environment. Yeah, there are. I mean, we've been defensively oriented all year, really since February or March of last year, and boring is beautiful. Healthcare was uh, was a sector that did really, really well last year. The pharma stocks, utilities have done well. REITs have picked their head up again with the rate move lower. I'm not sure that's going to survive if rates go back up, but for now, they look okay. Staples have been great. Yeah, they're expensive, but I didn't hear anybody complaining about tech stocks being expensive when they were working. There's always something in the market that's working on a relative basis. Here's where it gets a little tougher because if the finishing move in a bear market typically is more democratic, it's going to be kind of everything. Because one thing that's happened, and if you if you observe this in the last three months, right? So the tech sector really blew up in the third quarter, the big fang stocks, and the market was actually not even down. Remember, that's when we made our call because the money went into other sectors. So like industrials are crazy expensive now and up on a spike going mm-hmm. potentially a recession, which seems kind of loony. And the reason why that's happening is because the money is not leaving the equity market. It's just sloshing around. But in the final move, in the final panic, the money leaves the market. And that's when it becomes more kind of homeopathic. Correlations go to one. I mean, listen, that was a huge story. It was a great market for traders last year. If you think about those rallies that we had, we had one from mid-March. We had one from mid-October. We had one going back to the summer in mid-June. I'll just say this, though. Dan Loeb of Third Point, he tweeted this out. I think it was last week or something. It's like, said something about like those holding or, or clutching on your rosaries and hoping for the leaders of the last bull cycle to lead us out. Don't hold your breath, I think was kind of the message in that tweet. But it's interesting because you just kind of echoed that a little bit, but you just also said, that the rotation into industrials, into energy, because energy stocks had a huge rally off the lows in the fall, summer, fall. I think if we were heading into a recession, I'd much rather go to those mega cap tech stocks. Guys, guys, rosaries. Um, those mega cap, I've known you for how long? Do you carry those every day? Since I've been in middle school. Oh my goodness. You're like right out of like a Bronx tale or something like that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean the folks like, can't you know, see really it. really is. I mean, that that's fascinating. I mean, you surprise me every day. Which is but surprising. But that just literally almost knocked me off my, uh, all right, back to my point. So we've had this rotation into value, into industrials, into energy. And that's, to your point, kept the market above those October levels when we've seen huge names like Apple make new 52-week lows. Amazon, very near them. Tesla fell out of bed. It got cut in half in the last two months of the year. So I guess at some point, I would say those stocks are going to get really oversold, and I'd much rather be in them than being in perceived value. Does that make some sense? It does, except I would caveat it with the following. Okay, once again, going back to what Danny said, okay, if you think we're going into recession, you can't be doing that now because those stocks are going to get smoked too. Because that's where that's what people own, yep. right? So that's what's going to be sold, and plus they're part of the index. I think the more interesting takeaway from what's happened in the last sort of three months. So we had the big rally in the Dow, right? So the Dow is really what drove that rally in October, which is all the kind of cyclical industrial stocks. And what that's telling me, okay, is that those are going to be the leaders in the next bull market. But I wouldn't buy them here because they're up on a flagpole. Number one and number two, they're cyclical. 
One last question on this topic, though. There was so much money that went into alternatives, but specifically into VC. And so a lot of these crossover funds, a lot of these growth funds, they are responsible for a lot of the marks in the private markets. And we're going to see a lot of that stuff marked lower. So I wonder, and I'm just curious, because you talked to some of these very big capital pools, do you think there's a chance that when we start seeing marks of things that, we gave an example guy last week, a company called Databricks, okay? And it's a big expected IPO. I'm not asking you to comment on that. And hopefully it'll be a 2023 and it's a competitor to Snowflake and Snowflake's down 70 some percent and its valuation is still fat on almost every metric. And I think internally they had marked down their own valuation 7% or something like that in the summer. So there's going to be big marks. The companies are going to mark them down. The VC funds are going to mark them down. And I wonder, do the VC funds or the crossover funds more specifically, do they start selling the liquid stuff like you just talked about? Because they have redemptions. VC firms generally don't. It's longer tail money. So thoughts on that? That was definitely part of the June low. Right? We saw that in the June low. Is there another round of that now? There'll probably be some of that, but that's not going to be the main driver. The main driver of the final low, in my view, is going to be about people giving up on the idea that there's a soft landing for earnings. Forget about the economy. That basically they're so far off on their forecasts on margins and profitability. That's the real story, Dan, is that the operating leverage is going in the wrong direction now. And I think we're all going to be surprised just how severe that negative operating leverage is because companies got fat. They got fat during this basically a bonanza of COVID. COVID was a bonanza for many, many companies, and they invested poorly. They invested sloppily. They oversupplied themselves. They overhired, and now they got to eat those costs. Mike, I know you can't comment on specific banks, obviously, but we have Wall Street banks. We have consumer-facing banks. The sector in general was a rough year last year, the IPO, the M&A, all the stuff. It doesn't appear, obviously, the scenario that we're painting four of us now. Obviously, it's not going to be great for them. To me, it's going to be the, one of the more interesting sectors. And when I say that, it's not about trading the XLF, it's about stock picking. So if you were to give advice to people out there, which I know you, it's individual stock picking, can you comment on the bank sector in general, how they're going to trade in this environment, and then just stock picking in general, why it's such a, a lost art, but a needed one, especially this year? Yeah, totally. I mean, look, I mean, this year, as Dan said earlier, I mean, there was plenty of opportunity to make money, either as a trader or as even an investor. I mean, we have a long only portfolio that we don't trade that was up on the year. It was a very defensive portfolio. And that's one way to do it. But getting back to your question, banks is one of the areas that we're really bullish on in the next bull market for a couple of reasons. Number one, they aren't going to have the big default cycle. We think in a typical recession, the balance sheets are really, really healthy, more healthy than they've ever been. So we're not going to see those big write downs. Number two, capital markets and things like that are going to come back with a vengeance because there's going to be tremendous equity issuance, I believe, to recapitalize potentially corporate America where there's too much debt. And that's going to be a big wave of, of activity for them. The third one, which is a little more nuanced, which I can't really prove out, but I think the Fed is going to be very lenient with the banks because they need the bank's lending. To get M2 growth back to high single digits, which is what they need to grow the economy 6 7 8% nominally, they need the bank's lending. So they're going to let them over-earn probably more than people think. Like I don't think they're going to be onerous on regulatory change the way that perhaps people are fearing. And that's a good thing. So they can trade maybe above book value multiples, which is kind of where they're trading now. And then the last thing is, what Dan was talking about earlier, there's a lot of private shadow banks that stole business or took business away from the banks post-GFC because the banks couldn't lend. And now that share shift is going to go back the other direction as they're handcuffed and the traditional banking system is not. So I'm extremely bullish on the banks globally as well. I think there's a huge rate cycle that's already begun. That's obvious. And that's their pricing mechanism. So yeah, I think it's a space where investors can start picking away at that now even, where things that are trading close to book value, I mean, 
maybe go down 10% from here, 15%. That's fine if it's a double over the next three years. And just to follow up on that, just to get a little wonky, but I think it's worth explaining the SLR, the supplementary leverage ratio that banks have, they're not allowed, obviously, they have to exclude treasuries. And to me, Mike, that's one area that I think we'll see some type of relief, especially if QT proves to be as volatile as we think it might be, right? And impact on reverse repo and all that. Thoughts on that? Because I think that may be the buying signal. It's a great point. It's something we didn't see coming in May. And I'm sure you remember when the Fed required the banks to increase the reserves. And it was kind of for their own protection. As we go into this slowdown, the Fed wants the banks to be healthy so that they can do exactly what you just said. They need that lever. They need to be able to push that lever when they need to, to get growth going in the other direction when they feel like inflation is under control. So I totally agree with that. If you know when that date is, please let me know. Send me an email because I think you're right. It could be a really important signal. To continue the theme, both Danny Moses and myself believe the environment that we find ourselves in is the perfect environment for the following. I give you Shakespeare yet again, Merchant of Venice, Dan Nathan, all that glitters is not gold. And I will say that over the last six to nine months, we've seen the Bank of Japan intervene in their currency. Subsequently, the Bank of Japan intervened in their currency vis-a-vis the bond market. That's why they did it. You have the ECB, Bank of England, central banks around the world seemingly just pushing buttons. Gold very quietly is rallied. Is there a place for gold in this environment, Mike Wilson? Yes, we're pretty constructive on gold. I think it's a good hedge against both deflation and inflation. It has been a good inflation hedge because there's been better inflationary hedges in the environment we've had so far. The one risk, I think, for gold in the very near term is that the Fed stays more hawkish and real rates stay a little stickier in the short term. But I think anywhere near 1700, 1750 on gold is a great entry point for something to the low 2000s, uh, maybe higher. Yeah, I'll just echo. It seems like anything that would make the market rally, i.e. Fed stopping, is going to be just a massive positive for gold. And the risk reward, honestly, Mike, not to get into the weeds on this, but we can go into the physical versus the ETFs and all that. There's going to be a run on gold, so to speak, in my opinion, because the way this market has been with manias, I mean, over the last 25 years, but especially the last two, three years, people are looking for something to hold their hat on. And it might indeed be a meaning gold. It'll probably get overbought and obviously come back down, but it does feel like a quote, perfect storm to be long gold in this environment for and sure. Global central banks have been buying gold. Mm-hmm. See that in the data, right? So, uh, I mean, that's a- Dan's laughing. It's true in record amounts. Now it's not manifesting itself I, in I the price. I think Mike Wilson Dan. has no idea how much I listen to you and vice versa. So this is a comment that I've heard, I think twice already today and four times last week. And, well, and when he well, says it, it, it's got some gravitas. When that's I right. say it, it's a throwaway line. Anyway, please continue, yeah, Michael. Well, I just read in the newspaper. (laughs) But I mean, in all seriousness, okay, so we're going to a multipolar world, right? Competing currencies, potentially. The Bank of Japan's actions, I think, are really important. They're saying it's time to defend the currency to some degree. We know that China wants to separate itself from the U.S. dollar. Obviously, Russia's a whole other story and them being kicked off the reserve platform, essentially. So there's going to be competing currencies. And that means there's not as much trust anymore in the almighty dollar So that leaves some opportunity for gold, and it doesn't take a whole lot of money to drive the metal higher. Anything out there from a geopolitical standpoint, is there some sort of detente in the situation with Ukraine and Russia's invasion? Is there some sort of signaling from the Chinese that they are not going to be an aggressor towards Taiwan? Are there some things that could go right? Because we've talked about this a lot on the pod. I mean, last year was 
probably one of the first years where we can remember in a long time where some geopolitical thing that people had on the bingo board really caused a lot of disruption. And we can all agree that COVID was a bit of a black swan. You know, that was one, and Guy pointed that out in late 2021. I mean, we were talking about a lot of people didn't think there was a high likelihood that the Russians would invade Ukraine the way they did. I think on the flip side of it, I think we're seeing that maybe some of the disruption to the energy supply chain is not as bad as we thought. I mean, if you think about where natural gas is, what you think where crude oil is and gas at the pump. So I'm just curious, is there anything out there that you think could actually diffuse some of the geopolitical risk that's out there in 2023? Well, look, I mean, I think we just had a diffusion. I don't really necessarily understand why oil is trading where it's trading. Natural gas, I get, because now there's all this supply heading to Europe where you get a better price. So they have an oversupply of LNG, so that's killing natural gas price and the weather's been warmer. But oil is a weird one. I mean, what it tells you, and this is one of the things that I was talking to a lot of clients about in the last, like earlier last year, Everybody said, well, you got to own energy. I said, well, I kind of like the materials better. And they said, well, why? Because there's latent supply in oil. I know there is. It's out there and it will come to market if it can get there. And that's exactly what's happened. So Russia is obviously selling oil to China. Iran is back in the picture selling it to probably India as well. I mean, we know that. that Oil is now coming out of these latent supplies that have been restricted. And that just tells me that we're not as short oil perhaps as some of the oil bulls have been talking about, which is a real positive. Like if you think about where oil prices are today and where gasoline prices are today, like if they hadn't come down, we probably would be in a recession. Like the consumer wouldn't have been able to take $5 gasoline through Christmas. So that's a real positive. And that's something that I didn't see coming. And that may be more sustainable than what we think. Back to the banks, Mike, just as it relates to trading and holding positions. Obviously, there's a lack of liquidity in the markets in general. We've seen crazy moves in all commodities, right? I think that's going to continue. And it just creates, obviously mixed signals. I don't see that improving at all in the course of 2023. Volatility is one thing, but not having any type of liquidity on the other side is another. What are your thoughts on that in general? Well, that's right. I mean, I think these low prices can happen in the market sometime earlier than people think this year because that liquidity picture is deteriorating from here. There was plenty of liquidity being provided to the system to get through year end. That's what the reverse repo activity showed. But you know, going forward, I don't think that that liquidity availability is going to be as good. I mean, the Fed is committed now. The TGA has been drawn down. The repo operations are kind of maxed out. So yes, I think that's a big factor in why multiples can go easily 13 times, some number on the way to 200. For a long time, and I'm not suggesting this is correct, by the way, this is just my belief. For a long time, there were business cycles, very understandable business cycles, and that's been alchemied out. So they're no longer business cycles. Now they're basically credit cycles manufactured by central banks. It changes your job. Does it make your job a little bit more difficult? Yeah, because there's the things you can't really measure exactly. or analyze. So we try to be humble to some degree and, and appreciate we can't predict all those things. And that's why we use technicals so aggressively, because the market does know. The one thing I will say, throughout all this period, the last 20 years, you know, we've been doing this, or 30 years, but really the last 20 years intensively, I would say the market internals have been pure. They tell you all you really need to know. The best strategist in the world is the internals of the equity market. You just follow that. It really helps you understand what's going on. And that's why even in the rally this fall, the defensive stocks did really well. So that was telling you that it was a garbage rally. You just knew, okay, the defenses are holding up. This isn't going anywhere. All right. So your next bullish call in the stock market, is it likely to be tactical. And this is, again, going back to what I think Guy asked you a little bit ago, because you're going to have a lot of eyes on you. Or is it likely to be, listen, I could be wrong on the exact moment in time on the bottom, but we're within 
10% or so. And do you give that some thought? Because if we are down back at 3490 again or something like that, sentiment's going to feel as bad as it did in that. It probably feels worse, actually, if you think about it, right? In the retest of that, a lot of the internals that you were just talking about are going to look a lot worse because time makes them worse. But it also makes it closer to a bottom, right? And so talk a little bit about also duration. Is there some sort of internal clock in your head? Because we know the average length of the bear market is this. I'm just curious, like, how are you going to think about when you want to be bullish, how you're going to be bullish over your career? Have you made like bottom calls? Like, that's it. Yeah, we've definitely made those bottom calls. One was in March of 2020. That was a pretty dramatic call at the low. That was a definitive call. It was not a tactical call. That was like, get long, and this is, this is going to be a monster. Is there going to be an opportunity created for us to do another tactical call like we did in October? Maybe. Will we be as specific and adamant as we were in October? Probably not, for the reason you mentioned, Joe, that the time and price, it's getting narrower and narrower. Like if we get another bear market rally before the final low, it'll probably be shorter and not nearly as big, which is, means it's even harder to trade. Like it'll be a 5 to 7% or something like that in probably two weeks. And I'm not going to be making calls like that. So we'll see how it goes. I am optimistic. I'll tell you this. I am optimistic that at some point in the first half of this year, we'll be making more of a true bottom call where we can really sink our teeth into stuff that we can own for several years. So, Mike, you talk about sectors within the U.S. stock market, but just pulling it back there, obviously the IMF, pay attention to them if you want, but they put out a pretty sobering global macro forecast that half of Europe will be in a recession. We've obviously seen China reopen. Is the U.S., though, in your opinion, on a relative basis, not an absolute basis, still the sexiest game in town? And with that, how do you trade the dollar and what is the U.S. dollar impact on, on that? How do we think about that? No, I mean, I think China is the easiest game in town right now from a stock market standpoint globally. I mean, that thing got totally bombed out this summer. People call it uninvestable. That, I mean, that's a great phrase to hear. And it was kind of uninvestable, but that's how bombs are made. And then, of course, then the zero COVID policy ended kind of abruptly. I didn't expect it to be that quickly. And they're pushing out a lot of strings or even stimulating the real estate market now. So our, our guys in Asia made a great call on that. That has nothing to do with me, but they made a great call upgrading China and some of the Asian markets as well, Taiwan and even Korea, kind of at the right spot. So I think those markets look better to me. The EM markets look better because of what you said at the end. The dollar topped. It's pretty clear to me the dollar's topped for two reasons. A, the Fed is much closer to the end, but other central banks are getting more hawkish incrementally, particularly the BOJ and even the ECB. So that helps the dollar come off. But the main reason the dollar topped is because the FANG stocks blew up. The money's leaving. All that money that chased into the US went into those stocks globally, and now it's going out. And that will cause a dollar to come down on a relative basis. That drives EM. Yeah. And I encourage our listeners to go back. I think it was October 24th. It might have been the 21st when Alibaba traded down to 58 and change, closed that day at 63. I will tell you all day long, all I heard about was how uninvestable China was. And I'll tell you, because I happen to know for a fact, that was the ball's low, Dan. Yeah, but again, it's trading versus investing. If you think you just use multipolar world, we are in a bipolar world from here on out. And for all those people who think that 2023 might bring a shooting war between China and Taiwan that resembled something like you know Russia and Ukraine, it's much more likely to be an economic war. We're much more likely to see a step up in the sort of sanctions and trade 
restrictions and the list goes on and on. And I just think it's interesting that headline the other night that the Chinese are stopping some of the stimulus for their own chip industry at a time when we are giving massive incentives to our chip industry. So think about that, that capitalistic incentives for companies in really strategically important industries are beating out those in a communist country. I just think that that sort of economic war really has the potential to make China uninvestable for U.S. citizens. Thoughts on that? I don't know if it's uninvestable. I think you just got to take it with a little bit of different grain of salt. I mean, first of all, the cooperative relationship between China and the U.S. is over. This beautiful relationship where they produce our goods, then they buy our bonds and fund our ability to run our deficits, and we consume the stuff that they produce. I mean, that virtuous circle has been broken. Okay, now another cycle or circle will be created from that. I'm not in the business of predicting geopolitical events or warfare, that's for sure. It's impossible for even experts to do that. I'm hopeful that that won't happen. I think it's more of an economic war. I think we can be competitors without military conflict and without economic warfare that becomes destructive. I mean, that's my hope. Last year, Danny Moses was the Mike Wilson of NFL picks. I'm just putting it out there. It was unbelievable. (laughs) This year, not so much. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you to stick around for this. You don't need to participate. But, Danny, as we've reached the final week of the National Football League, the league where they play for pay, and a league that finds you, again, either side of 500, it's fine. Give me some picks just to round out the year as we head into the playoffs. Playoffs, by the way, Danny, that the New York football giants find themselves in. Congrats to you. Thank you. And let me just say Thank you. That, let me just say, while we were on this podcast, I saw news that Damar Hamlin was communicating. Amazing. I mean, it's truly, I got the chills when I read it. So that put, you know, gambling on games, whatever, all on the back burner. So let me just start with that. That being said, I'm going to ride this mojo of these two teams this week. Oh, no. I don't care. They're going to play. I don't even care if I win. I don't even going to, I just want to be a part of these two teams that went through so much and handled it. The teams themselves, I thought incredibly well. Bills at home against the Pats. The Pats are toast. Everybody's turning on the quarterback. They're done. You know, effectively, the Bills and the Bengals had a bye week. Granted, it was an emotional roller coaster. I didn't want to try to predict that. But give me the Bills over the Pats minus seven. And then the Bengals, really, who knows what the tiebreakers are going to be. But in kind of a must, not a must win, but a lot can happen if they win this over the Ravens, who without Lamar Jackson continue. So both teams are laying seven. I'm just going to ride the good mojo of both teams, and that's it. And I don't even care if I win because I'm just so happy Demar Hamlin's doing better. That's all I got, guy. Amazing. I saw the same news. So thanks for bringing that up. And listen, we obviously wish him and his family nothing but the best. It sounds like he's absolutely turned the corner, which is extraordinarily encouraging. We started this with Shakespeare, Mike Wilson. We'll end it with Shakespeare because why not? Modest doubt is the beacon of the wise. I'm not sure what Shakespeare play or sonnet or whatever that's from, but it happens to be true. And when you speak There's no certainty in what you, but there is that modest doubt. I think you're constantly questioning yourself. Where can I be wrong? Where can I be wrong? That comes through your work. And I think that's why, Mike, it's so thoughtful. And that's why Dan, Danny, and myself are so fortunate to have you on with us this first episode in 2023 of On the Tape. Well, I appreciate that. That's very nice of you to say. And it's great to be here with you guys anytime. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.